This podcast contains descriptions of true crime, murder, and assault that some listeners may find disturbing. It is intended for mature audiences only. Welcome back to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. This time we are going to do a deep dive into the story of the Texarkana Phantom. This has been referred to as the Moonlight Murders, the Phantom Murders, and is the basis for both the 1976 movie, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, and the inspiration for the 2014 movie of the same name. The thing that started my interest in this case is a movie that I recommend. The Town That Dreaded Sundown, the 1976 original version. It is based on the murders and is almost documentary in style, but also very much the old-time horror movie. I love it. I don't know why, but I do. I don't remember where I came across this movie, but it wasn't longer than, say, 8 to 10 years ago or so. It is what got me interested in the Phantom story and made me wonder who is or was the Phantom and how did he elude capture? The movie poster for The Town That Dreaded Sundown says it is a true story, not based on a true story. You don't have to dig far, though, to find out that a lot of theatrical license was taken. In the beginning of the movie, they say only the names were changed. But actually, the names, the way the murders were committed, and other things were entirely fiction. Again, there was a lot of artistic license taken, but it is still a good film, and it gets you into the time frame and the feeling of where the murders took place, and overall does capture the general story. So, there were four separate incidents attributed to the Phantom, at first occurring a month apart, and then three weeks apart. To this day, the mystery is not solved, and the Phantom has not been caught. There are suspects, especially two that we will talk about, but in my humble opinion, there is not enough to say definitively that either one was the Phantom, but you can't 100% rule them out either. Let's go over a quick rundown on the attacks, and then we'll get into some more detail about what was going on in the community, what law enforcement did, and more details of the crimes themselves. And of course, we will get into what suspects there were. So the first attack takes place on February 22nd. Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jean Larry were parking on a deserted road, sort of a lover's lane, and a man with a mask like a burlap sack or a pillowcase with two eye holes cut out, Blitz attacks them. He has a flashlight and a pistol. He makes Jimmy take off his trousers and beats him with the gun. Mary Jean pleads with the attacker, and he orders her to run. The attacker catches up to her, and although he assaults her, she eventually gets away and gets help. Both Jimmy and Mary Jean survive the attack. March 23rd is the second attack and the first double murder. Navy veteran Richard Griffin and his date, Polly Ann Moore, were parked on Lover's Lane named Rich Road. Both were found dead the next morning. Both shot. There were indications that both of them might have been, but especially Polly Ann Moore, killed outside of the car and put back in the car afterwards. 
The third attack and second double murder took place on April 13, 1946. Paul Martin, 16, and Betty Jo Booker, 15. They were both found dead the next morning, but separately and away from the car that they had been parking in. Paul Martin was found the next morning lying on the side of the road and had been shot four times. It wasn't until nearly 12 noon that Betty Jo Booker was found. She was fully clothed, but there were signs she may have been interfered with. She was shot twice. On May 4, 1946, the final attack takes place. Virgil Starks, 37, a farmer, and his wife Katie were the next and last ones attacked. Virgil was sitting in a chair with a heating pad on his back. He was listening to the radio. The window shade was not pulled down. And someone from outside pumped two shots into the back of his head. His wife heard the glass breaking, didn't hear the shots, and she went to look. She rushed to the wall telephone, tried to call, and then there were two more shots for her. She was shot in the lower part of the face. She was eventually able to run for help from neighbors, bleeding terribly the whole time. So there were four horrific attacks, five murders, and three severely assaulted and injured. It was 1946 and the war was over. That's World War II for any of you that flunked history. Many boys were back home and settling in, and some were still coming back home. Texarkana is one city that is in two states, Arkansas and Texas. While the movie and documentary makes this seem homey and small town, it was actually both a pretty bustling community and a small town. There was a lot going on there before, during, and after the war. After the third phantom attack, the Texas Rangers were called in for help. It was obvious that something serious was going on. At first, some investigators did not believe the first attack was connected to the double murders that took place. But it was an obvious fit and eventually became included. There was also some speculation that the attacks on the Starks couple was not part of the phantom murders. However, like the first attack, it was eventually included. So all four attacks were definitely considered to be committed by the phantom. Throughout the phantom investigations, over 400 people had been arrested. Some were held for days for questioning. Almost all checked out and were let go. There are some really good sources I will get into at the end, but up front, I want to say some of the best stuff I've seen and read have come from John Tennyson, M.D., and Jeremy Kennington. They have some videos out on YouTube, and Kennington has a great Facebook page on the Moonlight Murders. Also recommend the book The Phantom Killer by James Presley. I'll get into these more at the end of the episode. Now we will get into a more detailed account of each crime. On the night of February 22nd, Jimmy Hollis, age 25, and girlfriend Mary Jean Larry, 19, were parked on a lover's lane. They had been at the movies just before that. Sometime before midnight, a man wearing a white cloth mask with eye holes cut out flashed a flashlight in the car window. 
Jimmy thought it was a prank and told the man he had the wrong person. The man told him he didn't want to kill him, so he better do what he says. They were ordered out of the car, and the man told Hollis to take his pants off. When his pants were around his ankles, the masked man hit Jimmy hard twice with the pistol. Mary reported the sound was so loud she at first thought Jimmy had been shot. What happened was his skull was fracturing. Mary pleaded with the attacker and told him they had no money and showed him her empty wallet as proof. The man hit her with a blunt object. She didn't know if it was the pistol or something else. The attacker told her to get up and run. She started to run toward a ditch, but he yelled at her to go the other way. She could hear him still hitting Jimmy as she ran. She ran told an old car she ran toward an old car that was out there, but no one was in it. The masked man caught up to her and asked her why she ran. She told him that he told her to. He called her a liar and hit her again, knocking her down. He then got on top of her and sexually assaulted her with the pistol. She got the courage to get up and was so humiliated with what he had done that she told the attacker to just go ahead and kill her. She was somehow able to get away from him at this point and ran a half a mile to a nearby house. On the way to the house, a car passed and she called out for help, but there was no response. She was able to wake up the people in the house and they called for police. During the attack on Mary, Jimmy was knocked out. He was eventually able to regain consciousness and managed to flag by a passing car. They went to a funeral home and called the police for him. Bowie County Sheriff W.H. Bill Presley and three other officers arrived at the scene of the attack. The assailant was long gone, most likely frightened away by the passing car and Mary calling for help. Hollis's pants were found 100 yards from the parked car. Hollis had multiple scalp fractures and had to be hospitalized for weeks several weeks, in fact, and when he was released from the hospital, the doctors told him he still had to take it very easy and was ordered to not work for at least six months. Mary was kept overnight for minor head wounds and other injuries. Hollis and Larry gave conflicting accounts of what the phantom looked like. Mary said he was wearing a white bag or pillowcase over his head with holes cut out for his eyes and mouth and she could see inside the mask and thought he was a light-skinned African-American. Hollis said he was a tanned white man around 30 years of age, but also said he was partially blinded by the flashlight. They both did agree he was around six feet tall. Jimmy Hollis was to have said about the Phantom, I know he is crazy. The crazy things he said made me feel that his mind was warped. Mary Jean Larry was to have said that she heard the phantom's voice ringing in her head, and if she ever heard it again, she would definitely recognize it. The second attack was on the night of March 23, 1946. Richard Griffin, age 29, and Pollyann Moore, age 17, were parked out on Rich Road, which was also known as a Lover's Lane. Nowadays, the age difference between 29 and 17 would be considered creepy. 
but back then it wasn't that uncommon, especially in the South. Pollyann Moore had been dating Richard for six weeks. There is no one to tell us how the Phantom approached them or what he said. The couple was found the next morning in Griffin's 1941 Oldsmobile sedan around 9 a.m. by a passing motorist who thought they were sleeping at first. Richard was found between the front seat, on his knees, with his head resting on his crossed hands. Pollyann Moore was found sprawled face down on the back seat. Griffin's pockets were turned out. He had been shot twice while still in the car. Both of them had been shot once in the back of the head. They were fully clothed. There was a blood-soaked patch of earth near the car that suggested to the police that one or both of them had been killed outside the car and then put back in. Congealed blood was found covering the running board and had flowed out the bottom of the car door. Pollyann Moore was most likely killed outside on a blanket, but then put in the car, put back in the car. A thirty-two cartridge shell was also found inside this blanket. Rumors had it that a sexual assault had also occurred, but there were no reports to back up this claim that we know of. However, Pollyann Moore's younger brother, Rocky Moore, said his family had been told she had a gunshot to the base of her head and she was assaulted in other ways. He also said he had the autopsy paperwork. Her brother said back then they called it criminal assault, but rape is what it amounts to now. This is from a documentary, Murder in the Moonlight, 2018, by Jeff Waldridge, which I highly recommend. A $500 reward was posted to help find the person or persons that have done this. In today's money, that would be almost $7,000. The third attack and the second double murder took place on April 13, 1946. Paul Martin, age 16, picked up Betty Jo Booker, age 15, from the VFW where Booker had been playing her saxophone with the band. Paul and Betty Jo had been friends since kindergarten. The next morning, Paul Martin's body was found at 6.30 a.m., lying near the edge of North Park Road. He had been shot four times, once through the nose, again through the left fourth rib from behind, a third time in the right hand, and last through the back of his neck. It wasn't until about five hours later that Betty Jo Booker's body was found almost two miles away and behind a tree. She was found by a family who had joined the search party. She was lying on her back, fully clothed, with her right hand in the pocket of her buttoned-up overcoat. She had been shot twice, once in the chest and once in the face. The weapon used was the same as the first double murder, a Colt thirty-two automatic pistol. Paul Martin's 1946 Ford Club Coupe was found three miles away from Betty Jo and a mile and a half away from Paul. It was parked outside Spring Lake Park and had the keys still in it. Betty Jo Booker's saxophone was missing from the scene. The saxophone was found six months later after the murder of Betty Jo Booker 
in some underbrush near where her body was found. The reward was now up at $1,700 for information leading to the person or persons responsible in the Griffin Moore and Martin Booker murders. That's just over $23,000 in today's money. After this third attack, which was the second double murder, the Texas Rangers came in under the command of Captain Lone Wolf Gonzalez, second most famous lawman in the country after J. Edgar Hoover. M.T. Lone Wolf Gonzalez had apparently got the nickname from going into many dangerous, life-threatening situations and coming out alive and alone. He was in dangerous shootouts where many were killed. At the time, there were estimations that he had killed 75 people in the line of duty. He told reporters that that was highly exaggerated. Later, it was brought down to a reasonable number of 25. The community was scared, and they had good reason. Paramount Theater canceled its midnight movie. Many nighttime events were changed so that young people would not be out late. A cry rose from the community for a curfew. All public places of amusement were closed at midnight on Saturdays. On the night of May 3rd, on the night of May 3rd, the fourth attack took place. Around 9 p.m., Virgil Starks, age 37, was sitting in the living room of his modest ranch-style home listening to a radio program. He was using a heating pad for his back and also had the newspaper on his lap. His wife, Katie, age 36, was lying in her bedroom in her nightgown. She heard something outside and asked Virgil to turn the radio down. Just seconds later, two shots were fired into the back of his head from outside the closed double window. The window was three feet away from where he was sitting. Katie thought she heard breaking glass, not a gunshot, and she went to the living room. She saw Virgil stand up and then suddenly slump down back into his chair. She saw blood and ran to him. She then ran to the phone to call for help. They had a wall crank phone, and she started to crank it and then was shot twice in the face, the shots coming from the same window. One bullet entered her right cheek and exited behind her left ear. The other went into the lower jaw just before and below the lip, breaking several teeth and then lodging under her tongue. She fell to the floor but then scrambled back and went for the gun in the living room. During this time, she could hear the killer cutting away the screen on the back porch. She was blinded by her own blood and could not find the pistol. She heard the killer coming in through the kitchen window. She managed to get out the front door and ran barefooted across the street in her blood-soaked nightgown. She was running to her sister and brother-in-law's house, but no one was home. She then ran another 50 yards to A.V. Pratter's house. Thankfully, he answered her call for help. She managed to tell him Virgil is dead and then collapsed. Pratter shot a rifle in the air to get help from another neighbor, Elmer Taylor. He told Taylor to bring his car because Mrs. and Mr. Starks had been shot. Taylor, Mr. and Mrs. Pratters, and their baby all rode with Mrs. Starks to the hospital. 
Immediately after the sheriff's department was notified, blockades were set up several miles in each direction. Gonzalez and investigators found a virtual river of blood and teeth at the crime scene. It is beyond me why she did not bleed to death, he said. There were only two bullet holes in the window, but four shots went through them. The caliber of bullets was 22 instead of the 32 at the other scenes. A flashlight was found in the hedge underneath the window where the killer shot through. There were shoe prints on the floor in the house and some smudged fingerprints. The next morning, the newspaper headline was Murder Rock City Again, Farmers Slain, Wife Wounded. Mrs. Starks was making improvements in the hospital, and the unofficial theory for a motive was sex mania because large amounts of money in the home were not taken. Mrs. Stark's purse, which still contained money and jewels, had not been taken. It was lying on her bed, and nothing had been stolen from the home. The headline on the front page of the Texarkana Gazette on Sunday, May 5th was Sex Maniac Hunted in Murders. Sheriffs from four counties, Captain Gonzalez and his staff of Texas Rangers, and Chief Deputy Tillman Johnson were on the case. Altogether, 47 officers were working around the clock to solve the mysteries. No fingerprints were found from the flashlight discovered at the scene. On May 29th, a colored picture of the flashlight was on the front page of the Texarkana Gazette. It was spot-colored, and it was the first spot-colored photograph in the newspaper. The description under the picture read, have you seen this two-cell flashlight? This is a picture in detail of the flashlight found at the scene of the Starks murder. This is a two-cell, all-metal flashlight, both ends of which are painted red. Three rivets hold the head of the flashlight to the body of the light. There has only been a limited number of these sold in this area. If you have owned or know anyone who has owned one of these lights, Report at once to Sheriff W.E. Davis, Miller County Courthouse, Texarkana, Arkansas. You may be the one to aid in solving the phantom slayings. There also was a plea for information on anyone out of pocket on the dates of the murders, asking people to call if they knew of anyone who was missing when they weren't supposed to be exactly on those dates. Persons who have such information and are withholding it when they know they should report it are leaving themselves open to possible charges of complicity in the event the slayer is captured. The Starks killing and attack has been up for debate as to whether to include them or not with the phantom crimes. It is definitely part of the phantom murders. The reason for saying it might not be part of what happened is that it happened in a home not in a lover's lane or a car, that the man was shot through the window and then the woman was shot while dialing the phone, and there was also a different gun type used. There were rumors as well at the time that it was a revenge killing, but Katie denied anyone wanted to kill Virgil, and nothing real came of that. You have to remember that the lover's lanes were for all intents and purposes closed down. 
No one was supposed to be near them after midnight, and everyone in town was afraid to park down deserted roads or in the park anyway. So first, you have no potential victims because everyone has been warned away. Then after a bit, the police set up decoys to try and catch the phantom. They have officers undercover and with mannequins in the car for the woman half of the couple. And all of these areas are being heavily patrolled. So the killer is most likely on to all or most of this. He knows the lovers are not parking, and he knows the police are looking for him. So whether or not he knows they have decoys planted, he does know that they would be looking for him in these areas. Presumably he can't or doesn't want to stop killing, and it's been nearly a month now. He sees the open curtains and the light in the house, and he can see the husband sitting there. Whether he noticed this house before or not, or if he just happened upon this, he may have seen it as his opportunity. His victim pool is very limited now. Just like before, he removes the male from the equation. In this situation, he shoots him in the head. Then he stays, and he sees the wife scream and go to her husband. He sees her run to the kitchen and then sees her picking up the phone. It was very rare for rural addresses at the time to have phones, and it is possible he was surprised that she had access to call for help like that. He most likely didn't realize they had a phone. He can't do what he did with the other girls because he needs to stop her so that she doesn't get that call for help out. The shots hit her in the side of the face and the jaw, and she is bleeding profusely. She goes to look for the gun they have in the house, but she is bleeding so badly she cannot see to find it. She is able to run outside and to the neighbor's house, and because she had escaped and there were houses for her to run to, he took off. So if it had been a personal vendetta of some kind, he most likely would have known some of these things, if not all of them, and would have taken steps such as cutting the phone line. Most likely, it was a crime of opportunity. Like I said earlier, his hunting grounds were no longer available. He notices his house with curtains open and the light on. He can see in the house. Whether he first noticed this house earlier on another night or just noticed it for the first time that night, it was probably a place of opportunity. Law enforcement at that time included it in the group of attacks and murders, and it is most likely the work of the Texarkana Phantom. People were on such high states of alert that the police had to turn on their sirens when they drove up to their homes, get out, and stand in their headlights so they could see them, and announce themselves to keep the residents from shooting them. Anyone showing up unannounced to anyone's home risked being shot. In order to go to somebody's place, you had to call up in advance so that they would be expecting you. Some people went to extreme measures of setting up booby traps or arranging for watch parties where a group of neighbors would spend all night at one house and take turns staying up and standing guard. For these reasons alone, the killings may have stopped. The Phantom no longer had a victim pool at all. You know, first of all, the Lover's Lane's uh, victim pool went away, and then the whole house thing didn't go quite the way he expected, and he definitely lost control in that situation. So 
it was the victim pool, like I said, he had no longer had a victim pool and at least not one that he was willing to deal with. For some, they think the killing stopped because a certain person was arrested for something else around that time. Or they think it was because a certain suspect died around a certain time. They find extra proof in the suspect's guilt because the killing stopped after this. However, it could be as simple as there was no longer an opportunity for the kind of attacks the phantom was interested in, and he may have just moved on somewhere else. Or maybe he was one of the suspects that are brought up in relation to this case. About the mask, we only know about the mask because of the description the first couple gave. Jimmy Hollis said he was a tanned white man wearing a white mask over his face with eye holes and mouth hole cut out. Mary Jean Larry gave the same description, but she thought he was a light-skinned black man. The only other surviving victim was Katie Starks, but she never saw her assailant. She said she did see a glimpse of his leg going through the window, and she might have seen him slightly outside of the front window, but she didn't really see him because Hollis and Larry were the only ones to see him. It is not known if he wore a mask during the other attacks by May 19th. Rumors were still being spread. Many people believed that the slayer had been caught and some of them believed he was being held at the Bowie County jail. Others believed he was taken somewhere else. The Gazette and the news offices were drowned with phone calls both local and long distance, asking about the apprehension of the killer. Uh, one of the sub-headlines was, Newspapers will tell public if killer is caught. Jeez. Sheriff Presley declared that innocent people were being accused of being the phantom and asked the residents to show more consideration for their fellow citizens. Presley stated, These rumors positively are not true. We can understand why the people believe them. All of us are tense and are hopeful that at any hour, officers will announce they have the killer in custody. The people must not become so anxious to rid themselves of the killer, however, that they brand innocent persons as the murderer and believe unfounded stories. The investigating officers have announced that when and if the killer is apprehended or killed, the public will be given the full story through the newspapers. We reaffirm this statement. The newspapers are kept posted on developments in the investigation, and they will announce all news immediately. We believe that the people have a right to know if the killer is caught or killed, and we pledge ourselves to let the public have this information. Okay, so we before we get into the suspects and start discussing them in detail, I want to go over what some of the uh, profilers said. There was actually a psychologist from 1946 that gave his opinion um, when he was asked for it. I believe it was from a newspaper reporter. Um, it was Dr. Anthony LaPala. He was a psychologist at the Federal Correctional Institution in Texarkana, and he was asked to give his opinion on the killer. He said he believed the same killer was responsible for the death of all of the victims he believed him to be between the ages of 30 and 50. He said the killer was apparently motivated by a strong sex drive and was a sadist. He said that a person who would commit such crimes was intelligent, shrewd, clever, and not often apprehended. 
LaPala's theory was that the killer knew what was going on in the investigation, that he knew the roads were being covered, and that is why he chose the farmhouse. Dr. LaPella did want people to know that his theories were surmised theories based on a large number of people who had committed similar crimes. He believed he was not a veteran because it would be apparent in the killings if the killer was a veteran from the war. He said the strengthening of the police force would not scare this killer away, but he would be willing to move due to the difficulty of committing a crime. He stated the man is very dangerous and definitely worked alone. No one would know because he would not tell anyone what he was doing. Some modern day profilers gave their opinion. Uh, Peter Brent, B-R-E-N-D-T, he said he thinks the killer is playing out some trauma that happened to him and he keeps trying, but he can't get it just right. He thinks something happened to the killer in this same area as the murders, and then he comes back from the war, and he uses some military training for the killings. Probably had some type of head injury. He tries to recreate, recreate the incident that happened to him, and he thinks that this would have happened around 1941 or early 42. He takes the description that the first female victim gave, and even though the killer was wearing a mask, the profiler thinks he might have been African-American. That an incident that happened to him in 41 or 42, he went away to war, he came back, and he was rage-fueled. Uh, he calls him an injustice collector. Some of the blitz attacks, he said, was very military style, and the flashing of the flashlight in their eyes to blind them. He said the IQ would be between 110 to 120. Another modern-day profiler, Glenn Owen, says the Phantom liked to humiliate his victims. It's a power, sexual thing. He made Jimmy Hollis pull his pants down to his ankles, and then he started pistol-whipping him, so badly that he almost killed him and put multiple fractures in his skull. He beat him bad. He says he was probably going to sexually assault the girl, and he put the gun barrel in her private parts, and then a car pulled up and interrupted. He got scared, and he didn't kill either of them. He wasn't just robbing them. He was looking to kill. He was a cold-blooded killer. He got off on humiliating people, beating them, hurting them. There was probably a sexual element to it. He took them by surprise and did whatever he wanted whatever got him off. Killing was one of the things that got him off, being brutal. He was both an organized and an unorganized killer, and he kept up with the newspapers. The Profile by John Tennyson, M.D. Gender, male, as most serial killers are males, and Hollis Larry described their attacker as a male. Race, white, as most serial killers are white. Age, between 14 and 30. Old enough to have a sex drive. The perpetrator would be expected to have reached puberty, which by virtue of sex hormones, possibly to the degree of being hypersexual. Under 30, because one of the two eyewitnesses, Hollis, describes perpetrator as a male under 30. Possibly associated with the Paramount Theater. Probably knows how to drive suggesting an age of at least 14, the age at which teenagers could start driving at that time, 
in Texas and probably Arkansas. Possible association with or use of railroads as routes of travel, either on slow-moving rail traffic or as a pedestrian. Probably more disorganized type than organized type. Okay, so now we're going to go over the suspects. I'm going to brush over the main ones and go over the minor ones as well. And then we'll go back to the major suspects and get in detail about them. The main suspect in this case was Yule Sweeney. And he was known as a car thief. Um, he stole car. He stole many cars. Uh, he was caught a few times, went to prison a few times. Uh, he happened to be out of prison during the time of these murders. And he was caught stealing a car or caught in a stolen car. Actually, his wife, he had just gotten married either that day or the day before. And his wife was in the stolen car when a police officer um, arrested her for being in a stolen car and he was not there at the time. So uh, they held her until they found Yule, where he was, and then they arrested him. Um, they went on to question his wife, Peggy, and she ended up telling them some things that made them believe he possibly was the Phantom. Also, when he was arrested, he said a few odd things like, uh, why are why you have me on something more than just stolen car and things like that. So uh, there were things that led them to believe that Ewell Sweeney was in fact the phantom and he was never convicted of this. Uh, but we'll go into it in more detail and you can get an idea of what they had on him and uh, you can decide for yourself. And then the next major uh, suspect after that would be H.B. Tennyson. His nickname was Duty, and so there's some books and things like that out there that says, Did Duty Do It? Um, his name was H.B. Duty Tennyson. And on November 5th, 1948, this is two years after the killings, uh, he was an 18-year-old freshman at the University of Arkansas, and he was found dead in his bed at his home in Fayetteville, Arkansas. That's where he was staying while he was at the university. Um, he had purchased cyanide of mercury uh, poison and swallowed the poison and died. And he left um, some notes, left some rather odd notes. And one of them was one of them was a suicide note that contained a confession inside of it. Uh, this portion of of the suicide note, where the confession is, says, "Why did I take my own life?" Well, when you committed two double murders, you would too. Yes, I did kill Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin in the city park that night and killed Mr. Starks and tried to get Mrs. Starks. You wouldn't have guessed it. I did it when mother was either out or asleep and no one saw me do it. And it goes on to explain it just a little bit further. Um... He was never seriously considered, I don't think. I mean, there were questions about it. They talked to his family. They looked over the notes and everything. They looked at the timeline. Uh, he would have been 16 at the time of the murders. Um, so that's probably something that they thought was improbable. However, he was an usher at the Paramount Theaters where um, most of the victims had gone to a movie the night of their attacks. Um, 
And there are some other odd behavior things, and we will get into that in definitely in more detail. And uh, you can decide for yourself on uh, HB Duty Tennyson. Okay, so I'm going to go over the other suspects, and um, then we can get back into detail about both uh, Yule Sweeney and HB Tennyson. Okay, so the first one was a German prisoner of war and others, they said. On Wednesday, May 8th, it was announced that an escaped German prisoner of war was considered as a suspect. He was hunted as a matter of routine. He was described as stocky, 24-year-old, weighing 187 pounds with brown hair and blue eyes. The POW stole a car in Mount Ida, Arkansas, and attempted to buy ammunition in several eastern Oklahoma towns. Meanwhile, late at night, on Tuesday, May 7th, a 45-year-old black man named Herbert Thomas was flagged down by a hitchhiker in Kilgore. The man said he needed a ride to Henderson because his mother was seriously ill and offered him $5. Thomas said that he would not have given the man a ride but felt like he needed to because the man told such a sad story. When they neared Henderson, the man pulled out a pistol and told Thomas to keep driving or he would kill him like the five people he killed in Texarkana, mentioning Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker by name. The man told Thomas that he was not done with killing and was planning on killing more. He said he was going to return to Texarkana and kill Martin's father. The suspect apparently did not know that Martin's father was already dead. The man then made Thomas stop in Lufkin and told him to drive back to Kilgore and that if he followed him, he would trail him and kill him. The man stole back the $5 as well as an additional $3. Thomas drove back to Kilgore and reported the incident to the police. Thomas described the man as being 5'8", about 130 pounds, approximately 27 or 28 years old, with red hair and wore khaki trousers and a GI jacket. During that same night in Lufkin, a local resident named Robert Atkinson spotted a peeping Tom in his window. Atkinson grabbed a flashlight and chased after him, but the man escaped. Atkinson then got in his car and went looking for him. Atkinson caught the man he believed was the peeping Tom, but the man convinced him that he was not the window peeper and that he had just taken his girlfriend home. Atkinson later learned the story about Thomas and decided to notify the police of his experience. Atkinson said the man he saw was 5'9", wore khaki, and had hair that could have been red. Gonzalez stated, We don't believe that the man who killed five people here in the past six weeks would boast about his crimes and then let the Negro go. Remember, it was 1946. It's unsure whether the man in each instance was the same man. The police kept searching for the POW, but it said that he had vanished into thin air. Their next one is a Atoka County suspect. On Friday, May 10th, in Atoka, Oklahoma, a man walked up to a woman's house and opened her screen door. He asked Mrs. Harmon if he could have some turpentine, food, and money. Mrs. Harmon told the man that she had very little turpentine and had no money or food. The man then grabbed Mrs. Harmon by her hair and dragged her out onto the porch. He told her that he might as well kill her because he already killed three or four people and that he was going to rape her. 
He then heard a horse galloping towards them and told her, There comes a man on a horse. If you report this to officers, I'll come back and kill you. And the man ran off, and the woman took her child with her to a neighbor's house further up the street and reported it to the police. Soon after her report, a widespread search for the man included 20 officers and 160 residents. She described the man as 5'10", white man, about 40 or 45 years old, about 150 to 155 pounds, with dark hair, and was in bad need of a shave. He carried an open 5-inch bladed pocket knife and was wearing gloves, and a faded brown or blue shirt with khakis and had an old, dirty, dark-colored flopped hat. Police arrested a suspect that closely matched the description on Sunday. The suspect had gloves that Mrs. Harmon identified as the same gloves worn by her attacker. The man was also wearing blue clothes and khakis. The pocket knife the 33-year-old was carrying, though, had a blade much shorter than five inches. This man was also cleanly shaven. After investigating the suspect, officers did not believe the man was the phantom. According to the man's story about bumming around the country, he could not have been in Texarkana during the slaying of Virgil Starks. The man said that he left Pine Bluff in the latter part of April and went to Colorado. Officers said that they were going to thoroughly check his story. They kept him in jail for three weeks so his beard would grow back, which would allow Mrs. Harmon to positively identify him as her attacker. The next one is a Los Angeles coma veteran. On Thursday, May 23, 1946, a 21-year-old ex-Army Air Force B-24 machine gunner by the name of Ralph B. Bauman told Los Angeles police that he thought he might have been the Phantom. I've been in a coma running from something, maybe murder. I want to clear it up. If I didn't kill five people in Texarkana, I want to settle down and be a stuntman in Hollywood. I'm the happiest when I'm living in danger. Previously, he had gone to the Los Angeles Examiner and told a reporter, I want to sell you some murder information. I know who and where the Texarkana killer is. Give me $5 and let me have an hour's start and I'll put information in a sealed envelope. The reporter called the police after reading, On a certain day in March, I was in Texarkana Theater watching a Pathé picture, news picture of war. When a party of persons acted wise and said overacting, it kind of got to me. I followed them home. I killed them within a period of three days. Police arrested the redhead at a downtown shooting gallery. He had just shot his 23rd bullseye in a row with a 22 rifle. Bauman said, I'm my own suspect. He claimed to have been in the coma for several weeks. He said that he woke up from the coma on May 3rd with his rifle missing and heard about a suspect matching his description. He then hitchhiked to Los Angeles, feeling like he was running from murder. Bauman said that he was discharged from the AAF for being a psychoneurotic in 1945. The chief of police said, I feel that the man is certainly a mental case. The Texarkana killings could have been the work of a mental case, and so far as we know, this man could have done it. But we have absolutely no facts. They will have to be developed if they exist. 
Gonzalez stated that several parts of the man's story had little basis in fact. And then there is the hypnotized suspect. This is the last one. Police arrested a black man in his 30s whose tire tracks were found on the other side of the road from Martin's body. After he failed a polygraph exam, officers decided to have him hypnotized. The man was taken to a psychiatrist and hypnotist named Travis Elliott. Elliott talked to the man in a private session for a while. Sheriff Presley asked Elliot if the man could be hypnotized. Yes, but you have the wrong man. He has no criminal tendencies, replied Elliot. Elliot, later speaking about the session, said, The technique I used on this man was to get him to completely relax. I got him started counting by ones, twos, threes, etc., to a hundred, and then backward. I had established in his mind that I was his friend. He knew he was in a very serious trouble, and he knew he was innocent. When he went under, he was counting by threes backwards. He was completely relaxed. The critical stage is the next date where you say the subject is cataplectic. The longer you keep them in the state of catalepsy, the deeper they sink into the third state. I kept him 10 minutes in this state of catalepsy. He was in a state of extreme exhaustion. Sweat was on his face. Observing that even Bill, Sheriff Presley, was still somewhat skeptical of hypnosis, whether or not the man was truly hypnotized or faking, I resorted to a fail-safe demonstration. Through suggestions, I removed all feeling, reflex actions, etc. from the subject's right arm and stuck a burning cigarette to his arm. Absolutely no reaction. Bill was thoroughly convinced. Elliot asked the man if he killed Betty Jo Booker, and he replied no. He then asked him if he knew who did, and the man said no. On the night of the murder of Booker and Martin, it was revealed that the suspect spent some time with a friend, dropped him off at home, then pulled over to the side of North Park Road to urinate. He then visited his paramour, but after the plans did not work out, he went home and then to bed. Sheriff Presley and his officers then checked the details of the man's story and cleared him as a suspect. He had lied during the polygraph test because of a love affair he was having with a married woman. And that is the end of part one. We will pick up where we left off in part two, and we will get in deep about Yule Sweeney and H.B. Uh, Tennyson and more about the investigation, and you can form your own opinions as to whether or not they had the phantom, they found the phantom, or the phantom continued on somewhere else. Thank you very much for listening. As always, I really appreciate your support. You can find me at Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast.com. That's Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast.com. And you can hit me up with a message with any feedback or case suggestions. Also, there is a Facebook page, Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. And there is an Instagram account as well, Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast on Instagram. And I'll see you soon for part two. Thanks again.